The search for absolute truth has been man's quest from the beginning. It is in that quest that difficult questions are asked. The motive of those questions should be founded on a sincere desire to test everything. In this series, we will embark on the challenge of testing the teachings and claims of what is often referred to as the New Testament of the Bible, or also called in Hebrew, the Berit Hadashah. We hope that you enjoy studying and testing the following teaching. wondered how ancient Jewish rabbis interpreted messianic prophecies and how such might compare to modern Jewish understanding? In this teaching, we will examine what ancient rabbis taught as it related to the Messiah and what modern rabbis teach and believe, and even examine some interesting insight revealed in the Torah about the timing of the Messiah. It is not uncommon for a Jewish commentary to point out that Jesus, and we often refer to him by his Hebrew name, Yeshua, did not fulfill all of the messianic prophecies. You might hear those who promote this message as being called anti-missionaries or counter-missionaries. Such groups often bring challenging debates with difficult questions. For example, did you realize that the Torah reveals not only how the Messiah was to come twice, but also when we should expect him both times? However, modern Jewish rabbis object to the idea that some prophecies are for a latter time and there is to be a second coming of the Messiah. Modern Jewish commentary rejects the concept of two messianic comings, yet certain ancient rabbinical writings actually taught two messianic comings. Why the difference? What changed with what was once taught by rabbis versus what is taught today in typical Jewish circles? Ancient Jewish rabbis noticed that messianic prophecies appeared to contain a dichotomy. Some messianic prophecies appeared mutually exclusive, as though it was not possible for prophecies to be of the same Messiah. Ancient Jewish rabbinical writings, in an attempt to reconcile this tension in messianic prophecy, assigned a name to each of these messiahs, one being Messiah ben Yosef and the other Messiah ben David. Generally, Messiah ben David is assigned all of the messianic prophecies related to the kingdom, and Messiah ben Yosef is assigned the prophecies related to the suffering servant. Of course, there are various doctrinal differences in attempting to understand the details, meaning some of the rabbis differ on specifics, but some of the common denominators are that there are two messiahs separated by a distance of time. We're not going to pretend that rabbis did not differ on some of these matters or that any particular rabbi had all the messianic prophecy interpreted correctly in advance. However, it should be interesting to note that Jewish scholarship already proposed a means to deal with these seemingly opposing messianic prophecies in such a way that require two messiahs at two different times. As a necessary disclosure, 119 Ministries believes that Yeshua in the first century, also known as Jesus in mainstream Christian circles, satisfied the messianic type of Messiah ben Yosef. We also believe that he will return and establish the role of Messiah ben David. We believe such because we believe the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, to conclusively detail out in advance, in the form of messianic prophecy, the specific events that led to the accounts found in the New Testament, or again, the Brit Hadashah. Meaning this, according to Old Testament prophecy, it was necessary that what was documented in the Berit Hadashah occurred how and when it did. 
One major Jewish objection to Yeshua as the Messiah centers around the misunderstanding perpetuated by mainstream Christians, specifically that Yeshua changed the law of God. Most Jews know that the Messiah could not change the law of God, as that would violate every known messianic prophecy and violate the very definition of a true prophet as detailed in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. In other words, the common presentation of the Messiah to Jews by mainstream Christianity presents a man that forces a Jew to interpret him as a false prophet, because mainstream Christianity has the Messiah doing away with the law of God. 119 Ministries also believes that the Law of God, or Torah, stands 100% intact today. We present Yeshua, the Messiah, as leaving the Law of God completely intact, meaning Yeshua is completely compatible with Deuteronomy 13. So although we have tested this subject and arrived to these conclusions, our goal in this teaching is not to project our conclusions onto you. What we will do is demonstrate how Jewish rabbis already interpreted Messianic prophecy in such a way that was conducive to the validity of the Berit Hadashah, or New Testament writings. What we also find is that many of the modern Jewish rabbis no longer interpret messianic prophecies in the same way that they once did. The reason for this is that much of modern Jewish doctrine is built on the framework of one particular rabbi who made every attempt to avoid such conclusions. There are still many other reasons why mainstream Judaism has a difficult time acknowledging Yeshua as a Messiah detailed in the Tanakh. Our focus in this teaching concerns the idea of Messiah coming twice. Currently, mainstream Judaism still does not see one Messiah with two comings as a reality. Yet, to some degree, ancient Judaism did see two messianic comings in the form of Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. Isn't that interesting? Let's first examine Messiah ben Yosef. In the twelfth chapter of Zechariah, it is written, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. To this the rabbis respond, This is Mashiach ben Yosef, who is to be slain. In Zechariah, we read that Yahweh was to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication, and that he was to be pierced. For those who are familiar with the New Testament accounts, the parallels to Zechariah 12 are absolutely striking. John chapter 19. But when they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. For you also may believe. For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Here, John quotes what we just read in Zechariah 12, verse 10. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. But he also quotes Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. In this instance, we have Jewish rabbis interpreting Zechariah 12 to be referring to the Messiah, and the Berit Hadashah account in John confirming that it happened. One of the most debated chapters in all the Tanakh about Messiah ben Yosef is found in Isaiah 53. The debate is whether Isaiah 53 is about the nation of Israel or about the Messiah. Counter-missionaries and modern rabbis will often testify that Isaiah 53 is only about Israel and has nothing to do with the Messiah. Most modern rabbis will passionately insist that Isaiah 53 cannot be and is not about the Messiah, but instead only about Israel. 
The Talmud, which is basically a collection of Jewish commentary on the Tanakh, reveals some insight that this is not too compatible with the more modern understanding of Isaiah 53. The Talmud explains in regards to Isaiah 53. The Messiah, what is his name? Those of the house of Rabbi Yudah, the saint say, the sick one, as it is said, surely he had borne our sicknesses. It has also been said, but he was wounded, meaning that since the Messiah bears our iniquities, which produces the effect of his being bruised, it follows that whosoever will not admit that Messiah thus suffers for iniquities must endure and suffer for them himself. Here we have Jewish rabbis, contrary to modern Jewish doctrine, testifying that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. However, before we really dig deep into Isaiah 53, we might question why this is even important or necessary. The reality is that as some have been exploring the roots of their faith after realizing hundreds of years of mainstream Christianity is in error, the same take the faith they once had in men in Christianity, and then start misplacing their faith in rabbis in Judaism. The sad reality is that both sides of the fence have much error. Just as mainstream Christianity in error latches onto traditions that abolish the law of God, mainstream Judaism projects much faith and credibility into rabbis that make a point to change the context and distance themselves from messianic texts. This means that we need to be very careful and be sure to test everything. There is a ditch on each side of the narrow path. Regardless of what traditions and doctrinal baggage we are coming out of, we need to be sure that we're not eager to simply jump into the other ditch on the other side of the narrow path. One of the easiest ways to illustrate this point is on the matter of Isaiah 53. Just as mainstream Christianity has their traditions of their fathers, so does mainstream Judaism. The rabbi who has framed and shaped much of modern doctrinal thought in Judaism is Rashi. It is understood by many other Jewish rabbis that Rashi, around the 11th century, intentionally changed the context of Isaiah 53 to be about Israel instead of the Messiah. That is not our claim about Rashi, but actually other Jewish commentators, which we will show you momentarily. Rashi proceeded with this doctrinal shift despite the fact that other great rabbis such as Maimonides and Crispin professed that the central theme of Isaiah 53 is prophetically messianic. Most agree that Rashi establishes change because of his strong anti-Christian mentality, a fact that he freely admitted. He made no attempt to hide his doctrinal bias or the fact that his commentary was diverting away from hundreds of years of Jewish messianic interpretation, solely in an intentional attempt to distance one's doctrine and conclusions from the professed Christians. In his defense, as a Jew, it would have been very easy to have an anti-Christian mentality given the violent anti-Semitism that occurred for hundreds of years in supposed Christian camps. Christians certainly did not live like they believed the Bible to be truth and did not preach an interpretation of the Messiah that was consistent with what the Old Testament demanded. Meaning this, Christianity professed that the law of God changed, that the Torah changed, and no longer applied. Because of this error, because Christians removed aspects of the law of God, Jews distanced themselves from the inaccurate presentation of Yeshua our Messiah. They ran from it, and rightfully so. But unfortunately, because Christians misunderstood the writings of Paul, many Jews have not recognized the fulfillments of messianic prophecies that occurred in the first century. Sadly, Christians not only did not walk the word of God in the presence of the Jews, but they also distorted Yeshua's beliefs and teachings to such a degree that forced the Jews to not be able to accept such a doctrine. If you are confused or need clarification on what we just said, pause this teaching and watch our teaching titled, The Deuteronomy 13 Test. So, 
To be fair, Rashi had good reasons to be against Christianity. Because Christianity used Isaiah 53 to justify the New Testament scriptures, Rashi changed the context of Isaiah 53. Now, please understand, as we revealed earlier, we believe the New Testament writings to be valid and true. We love our Christian brothers and sisters. We love our Jewish brothers and sisters. We simply believe that the mainstream Jewish doctrines need to leave the traditions of men that are not compatible with the Tanakh and discover the fulfillments of messianic prophecy that occurred in the first century. We also believe that mainstream Christianity needs to realize the Hebraic aspects of the Messiah, realize that the Tanakh contains prophecy that demands that the law of God could not and would not change in the New Covenant. Thus, both camps have issues to deal with. Simply put, hundreds of years of Christianity made some serious errors in the doctrine pertaining to the law of God, and because of those errors, Jews were forced to reject Yeshua, or Jesus, as their Messiah. Much of this error is due to a misunderstanding of Paul's writings. For more on this, please see our teaching series, The Pauline Paradox. Let's read the chapter in question, starting in Isaiah 52:13, and then we will discuss the debate in more detail as it relates to Rashi. We'll read this portion in Isaiah and attempt to determine for ourselves whether the context is about Israel or the Messiah. Then we will look more at what the ancient rabbis believed versus what Rabbi Rashi taught and believed, and how that shapes current modern Jewish doctrine. As a side note, we realize that there are many complexities in labeling groups of people with similar beliefs. We fully understand that there are Jews who know their Messiah Yeshua. We realize that there are Orthodox Jews. We know that there are Karaite Jews. And we know that there is everything in between. We do not wish to offend, but we recognize and respect these differences. For the sake of simplicity in this teaching, more often than not, when we use the term Jews, we are simply using the term to refer to Orthodox Jews. That being said, let's continue. Sadly, and quite revealingly, Jews usually do not include Isaiah 53 and a half Torah. The half Torah is a list of scheduled scriptures that are read throughout every year. This reading schedule is a tradition that developed in the dispersion when they lived in countries that outlawed the Torah, but allowed them to read the prophets. Sadly, there are Christians who only attend church on Christmas and Easter, and even some who attend weekly that are only there to be spoon-fed their faith. Similarly, there are casual Jews who only listen to what the rabbis say, but never do any study themselves. Because Isaiah 53 is usually passed over in these annual readings at the synagogues, many Jews have never even read that chapter. It is very possible that if you ever encounter a discussion with a professed Jew, that they will have never read Isaiah 53. But there are those who have and adopted a very non-messianic perspective about that chapter. The point is this. What would you do if a counter-missionary came to you and said that Isaiah 53 is only about Israel, not the Messiah? That Isaiah 53, having a messianic theme, is a complete fabrication of Christians? How would you answer that? Is it only a fabrication of Christians? Well, to answer that question, we would naturally start by reading Isaiah 53. As we said earlier, the Jewish readings skip right over Isaiah 52 and 53. In the Deuteronomy readings, the half Torah portions go from Isaiah 51.12 to 52.12, skip over 52.13 to Isaiah 53, and pick back up at Isaiah 54 verse 1. A Cambridge University rabbinics professor notes, Quotations from the famous 53rd chapter of Isaiah are rare in the rabbinic literature. 
Because of the Christological interpretation given to the chapter by Christians, it is omitted from this series of prophetical lessons for the Deuteronomy Sabbaths. The omission is deliberate and striking. Striking indeed, and it also has quite the impact in shaping Jewish doctrine in the synagogues. The Torah portion and half-Torah reading schedule is used by Jews in synagogues all over the world, so the doctrinal impact of this intentional omission is quite significant. They intentionally avoid and neglect what we are about to read. Let's see if Isaiah 53 is about only Israel or the Messiah's relationship with Israel. Let's see what they are missing. Let's begin. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. To be fair, the previous verses in Isaiah 52 were about Israel. And in fact, all the preceding chapters were about Israel. And here, in the middle of Isaiah 52, we see a mention of my servant. In the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as Yahweh's servant. However, this still could be a reference to the Messiah. While the servant is identified as Israel, he is distinguished from Israel in other passages. He is called Israel because he represents the nation. Consider the Olympic athlete analogy to illustrate this. When an Olympic athlete from the USA wins the gold medal, all the headlines read, USA wins the gold. Leaders also represent nations and thus can be referred to as the nation. When President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, it was said that America pulled out. That is how we can make sense of the servant being called Israel while being an individual who is distinct from Israel. We need to continue to glean more context. Verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Question. Where in the Tanakh is Israel referred to as the arm of Yahweh? If Isaiah 53 is about Israel, should we not be able to find additional scriptural confirmation of Israel being referred to as the arm of Yahweh? God has repeatedly promised to restore Israel to himself and be a light to the nations through his mighty arm, further distinguishing the nation of Israel from the servant, who is identified as this arm of Yahweh now being revealed. Let's continue. Isaiah 53 verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Question. If Isaiah 53 is about Israel and only Israel, meaning Israel is the he, then who is the we here? How can Israel be both the he and the we in the same context? Already, the Isaiah 53 as only Israel belief is appearing rather shaky. Let's continue. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Again, there's the difference between the he and the we. The we is known to be Israel, so the he cannot be Israel. The normal referent of we throughout Isaiah is Israel. The he, the arm of Yahweh, 
must be someone else. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Again, a difference between the we as Israel and the him as someone else. Verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So the R must be Israel, which raises the question again, who is the he? Now, unlike Rashi, other Jewish rabbis believe this to be about the Messiah. For example, as we read earlier, when Zechariah 12 is cited about he who is pierced, and like Isaiah 53 also states, Jewish commentary refers to him as the Messiah who is to be slain. This is Mashiach ben Yosef, who is to be slain. Certainly one would not believe that Israel is pierced and slain for Israel's own transgressions. Is Israel dead? Did Israel die and is nowhere to be found? Of course not. The he who is to be pierced and slain must be someone other than Israel. In addition, that person is slain for Israel's transgressions. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Was the author of Hebrews just making this up while noting first century events? Or was he referencing Isaiah 53? Let's continue with Isaiah 53, verses 5-6. through 6. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So Israel is healed by someone else's wounds. Verse 6, And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Israel's iniquity was laid on someone else. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The he, which is different than Israel, is referred to as a lamb. John 1.36 And he looked at Yeshua as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 verse 8 By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So if Israel is the he, then when did Israel die and was cut off from the land of the living? Are there no more Israelites today? Have they all been killed? Are they no longer among us? Again, the he must be someone else who was slain. Verses 8-9 through nine, Stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. If the my people is Israel, how can Israel be stricken for the transgression of Israel? Continuing on, verse 9. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He did no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. How can the he be Israel in light of Jeremiah? When has Israel ever been innocent? Is Israel innocent? Let's look at Jeremiah 3.8. She saw for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. 
This is a very important question. How can Israel be innocent and be able to also die for a not innocent Israel? How can Israel be innocent and not innocent at the same time? Let's continue examining Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. We find that the he has been abused, crushed, and killed for the transgressions of Israel. And here, we find that this is Yahweh's will, that this innocent man be sacrificed for the sake of Israel's transgressions to literally crush him. Let's continue. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So this man makes many righteous by bearing their iniquities through the anguish of his soul, when his soul becomes an offering for Israel's guilt. Again, how can Israel die for Israel? How can a blemished Israel be a guilt offering for a blemished Israel? How could that make any sense whatsoever? It is generally understood that typical modern Jewish commentary teaches that a man cannot become a guilt offering for someone else by bearing their iniquities when they are crushed or slain. Yet, here it is, right in the Tanakh. However, some rabbis do understand the biblical teaching of how a man can become a guilt offering for another. For example, consider this quote by Rabbi Burrell Wayne. Another consideration tinged the Jewish response to the slaughter of its people. It was an old Jewish tradition dating back to biblical times that the death of the righteous and innocent served as an expiation for the sins of the nation or the world. The stories of Isaac and Nadav and Avihu, the prophetic description of Israel as the long-suffering servant of the Lord, the sacrificial service in the temple, all served to reinforce this basic concept of the death of the righteous as an atonement for the sins of other men. Jews nurtured this classic idea of death as an atonement, and this attitude toward their own tragedies was their constant companion throughout their turbulent exile. Therefore, the holy bleak picture of the unreasoning slaughter was somewhat relieved by the fact that the innocent did not die in vain, and that the betterment of Israel and humankind somehow was advanced by their stretching of their neck to be slaughtered. What is amazing is that this abstract, sophisticated theological thought should have become so ingrained in the psyche of the people that even the least educated and most simplistic of Jews understood the lesson and acted upon it, giving up precious life in a soaring act of belief and affirmation of the better tomorrow. The spirit of the Jews is truly reflected in the historical chronicle of the time. Would the Holy One, blessed is He, dispense judgment without justice. But we may say that he whom God loves will be chastised. For since the day of the holy temple was destroyed, the righteous are seized by death for the iniquities of the generation. So, some rabbis understood this concept. Unfortunately, Isaiah chapter 53 is skipped over in annual readings, effectively hiding a fantastic example of this biblical lesson from the masses. You do not have to explain what most do not see or so the theory goes. Moving on, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Without question, it must be interpreted that Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53 cannot be only about Israel. As we said earlier, most of modern Judaism does not believe Isaiah 53 to be a messianic prophecy largely because of the doctrine of Rabbi Rashi. This is not a big secret, but something that is already known. The weight of Jewish authority preponderates in favor of the messianic interpretation of this chapter. That until recent times, this prophecy has been almost universally received by the Jews as referring to Messiah is evident from Targum Jonathan, who introduces Messiah by name, from the Talmud and from the Zohar. In fact, until Rabbi Rashi, considered the originator of the modern school of Jewish interpretation, who applied it to the Jewish nation, the messianic interpretation of this chapter was almost universally adopted by Jews. Here we are told that Rashi is the main cause of the belief that Isaiah 53 is not of messianic interpretation. He even quotes the Sanhedrin. Is that true? Are other rabbis of the opinion that Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy? Is this why the portion we just read in Isaiah is avoided in annual Jewish readings? Let's read other rabbinical commentary on Isaiah 53 from the Targum. Behold, my servant the Messiah shall prosper. Targum commentary on Isaiah 53 mentions that the servant is the Messiah, yet the word Messiah is not found anywhere in Isaiah 52 or 53, clearly demonstrating the belief that Isaiah 53 is centric to the role of the Messiah. Another, we know that messianic homilies based on Joseph's career and using Isaiah 53 as the prophetic portion were preached in certain old synagogues which used the triennial cycle. Here the understanding is established that not only is Isaiah 53 messianic, but related to the story of Joseph and his suffering, hence the concept of Messiah ben Joseph. Meaning this, the Messiah as Mashiach ben Yosef, or Messiah son of Joseph, simply means that Joseph is a type of a role of the Messiah. Even more astounding, this understanding was preached in old synagogues long ago. The rabbis said, His name is the leper scholar, as it is written, Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried out our sorrows, yet we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. If Isaiah 53 is only about Israel, then why would we see ancient interpretation that is not only about Israel, but also about the Messiah? Good question. Why is the very commentary of Jews proving the validity of New Testament writings? The next quote interprets Ruth to illustrate a hidden parallel to the Messiah and even relates it back to Isaiah 53. The fifth interpretation makes it refer to the Messiah. Come hither, approach to royal state, and eat of the bread refers to the bread of royalty, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar refers to his sufferings, as it is said, but he was wounded because of our transgressions. Let's read this verse in Ruth, Ruth 2.14. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside their reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. As a side note, some translations say wine instead of oil and vinegar. ESV included, as we are quoting. The Hebrew citation includes vinegar, which makes more sense for suffering than wine. This interpretation of Ruth, in which the Messiah is the bread, is consistent with the testimony of the Berit Hadashah. John chapter 6, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. John 6, 48. 
I am the bread of life. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Yeshua took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Again, why are the rabbis giving an interpretation of Isaiah 53 as the Messiah if it is only about Israel? The next quote is from a Karaite Jew. There are different denominations that exist in what is often widely referred to as Judaism. A Karaite Jew literally means to be a scripturalist. They make every attempt to simply call scripture as they see it. They make every attempt to only focus on the plain meaning of the text. This quote is from the 10th century, well before Rabbi Rashi began teaching the idea that Isaiah 53 was only about Israel and not about the Messiah. As to myself, I am inclined with Benjamin of Nahawin to regard it as alluding to the Messiah. This, of course, is referring to Isaiah 53, and note that he is agreeing with another ancient rabbi. And as opening with a description of his condition in exile, from the time of his birth to his ascension to the throne, for the prophet begins by speaking of his being seated in a position of great honor. This is found in Isaiah 52, 13-15. And then goes back to relate all that will happen to him during the captivity. He thus gives us to understand two things. In the first instance, that the Messiah will only reach his highest degree of honor after long and severe trials. So, first suffering servant, and then as king. It is a two-part process. And secondly, that these trials will be sent upon him as a kind of sign, so that if he finds himself under the yoke of misfortunes whilst remaining pure in his actions, he may know that he is the desired one. Here's another statement by the same Karaite rabbi. By the words, surely he hath carried our sicknesses, they mean that the pains and sickness which he fell into were merited by them. The them in the statement means Israel. But that he bore them instead. And here, I think it is necessary to pause for a few moments in order to explain why God caused these sicknesses to attach themselves to the Messiah for the sake of Israel. The nation deserved from God greater punishment than that which actually came upon them, but not being strong enough to bear it. God appoints His servant to carry their sins, and by doing so, lighten their punishment in order that Israel might not be completely exterminated. This understanding, of course, explains why Israel is mentioned as the servant before Isaiah 52, but from mid-Isaiah 52 onward, the head of servant role is attributed to a messianic figure in order to help Israel accomplish what they were always supposed to accomplish, which is to bring the Torah to the nations. So why do literal Karaite rabbis teach Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah if it is only supposed to be about Israel? This next rabbinical quote is very interesting. It directly states that Messiah ben Yosef will be slain, and then Messiah ben David will come, also referring to Isaiah 53. And Armelos will join battle with Messiah, the son of Ephraim, in the east gate, and Messiah, the son of Ephraim. This is a reference to Messiah ben Yosef, will die there, and Israel will mourn for him. And afterwards, the Holy One will reveal to them Messiah, the son of David, whom Israel will desire to stone, saying, Thou speakest falsely. Already is the Messiah slain, and there is none other Messiah to stand up after him. And so they will despise him, as it is written, despised and forlorn of men. But he will turn and hide himself from them according to the words, like one hiding his face from us. 
Again, why are the rabbis giving an interpretation of Isaiah 53 as Messiah if it is only about Israel? And let his kingdom be exalted in the days of the Messiah, of whom it is said, Behold, my servant shall prosper. He will be high and exalted and lofty exceedingly. Here's another rabbinical interpretation. What is to be the manner of the Messiah's advent, and where will be the place of his appearance? And Isaiah speaks similarly of the time when he will appear, without his father or mother of family being known. He came up as a sucker before him, and as a root out of the dry earth, etc. But the unique phenomenon attending his manifestation is that all the kings of the earth will be thrown into terror at the fame of him. Their kingdoms will be in consternation, and they themselves will be devising whether to oppose him with arms or to adopt some different course, confessing, in fact, their inability to contend with him or ignore his presence, and so confounded at the wonders which they will see him work that they will lay their hands upon their mouths. In the words of Isaiah, when describing the manner in which the kings will hearken to him, at him kings will shut their mouth, for that which had not been told them have they seen, and that they which have not heard they have perceived. Here's another rabbinical interpretation about the Messiah being in Isaiah 53. It should be noted that just because we are quoting various rabbis, it does not mean that we necessarily agree with them on all their doctrine and understanding. The purpose of citing them is strictly to prove that many rabbis already believe that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah, not only Israel. Here is another. There is in the Garden of Eden a palace named the Palace of the Sons of Sickness. This palace the Messiah enters, and he summons every pain and every chastisement of Israel. All of these come and rest upon him, and he had not thus lightened them upon himself. There had been no man able to bear Israel's chastisements for the transgressions of the law, as it is written, Surely our sickness he has carried. Here's another rabbinical interpretation of Isaiah 53 being about the Messiah. The right view respecting this parashah is to suppose that by the phrase, my servant, the whole of Israel is meant. As a different opinion, however, is adopted by the Midrash, which refers it to the Messiah. It is necessary for us to explain it in conformity with the view there maintained. The prophet says, the Messiah, the son of David, of whom the text speaks, will never be conquered or perished by the hands of his enemies. And, in fact, the text teaches this clearly. And by his stripes we were healed, because the stripes by which he is vexed and distressed will heal us. God will pardon us for his righteousness, and we shall be healed both from our own transgressions and from the iniquities of our fathers. There are certainly a lot of available rabbinical interpretations that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. Who art thou, O great mountain? This refers to the King Messiah, and why does he call him the Great Mountain? Because he is greater than the patriarchs, as it is said, My servant shall be high and lifted up and lofty exceedingly. He will be higher than Abraham, lifted up above Moses, loftier than the ministering angels. Interestingly, in the letter to the Hebrews, it also states that Yeshua, following his resurrection, is now higher than Moses and the angels. Both Hebrews and the 9th century rabbi shared the same perspective on the Messiah, at least in this instance. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3-4 through 4. He, Yeshua, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. For Yeshua has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moving on. This particular rabbi believed Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David to be the same Messiah, linking the role of Messiah that suffers for our transgressions in Isaiah 53 and the role of reigning as king in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. I have drawn him out of the chastisements. The chastisements are divided into three parts, one for David and the fathers, one for our own generation, and one for the king Messiah. And this is that which is written, he was wounded for our transgressions. So again, why are rabbis giving an interpretation of Isaiah 53 as the Messiah if it is only about Israel? Why are they linking Isaiah 53 to all other portions of messianic texts? Let's continue. Rabbi Crispin states that in his understanding, Isaiah 53 is certainly about the King Messiah. In saying this, he not only declares this to be the obvious literal interpretation, but also the same position that is consistent with other rabbis, meaning this. Isaiah 53, as a messianic text, is dominantly consistent with the other rabbis, at least until this point in history. Let's read. This parashah, the commentators agree in explaining of the captivity of Israel, although this singular number is used in it throughout. As there is no cause constraining us to do so, why should we here interpret the word collectively, and thereby distort the passage from its natural sense? as then it seemed to me that the doors of the literal interpretation of the parashah were shut in their face, and that they wearied themselves to find the entrance, having forsaken the knowledge of our teachers and inclined after the stubbornness of their own hearts and of their own opinion, I am pleased to interpret it in accordance with the teaching of our rabbis, of the King Messiah, and will be careful, so far as I am able, to adhere to the literal sense. Here is another. My servant shall prosper, or be truly intelligent, because by intelligence man is really man. It is intelligence which makes a man what he is, and the prophet calls the king Messiah my servant, speaking as one who sent him, or he may call the whole people my servant, as he says above my people. When he speaks of the people, the king Messiah is included in it, and when he speaks of the king Messiah, the people is comprehended with him. What he says then is, that my servant, the King Messiah, will prosper. And yet another. Since the Messiah bears our iniquities which produce the effect of his being bruised, it follows that whoso will not admit that the Messiah thus suffers for our iniquities must endure and suffer them for himself. Here is another rabbi that not only declares Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah, but also declares that his view is consistent with the other rabbis. I may remark, then, that our rabbis with one voice accept and affirm the opinion that the prophet is speaking of the King Messiah, and we ourselves also adhere to the same view. The evidence continues to amount that numerous rabbis, contrary to Rabbi Rashi's view, believe Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah, not only Israel. The insight of this particular rabbi is rather astounding. The fact is that it refers to the King Messiah who will come in the latter days when it will be the Lord's good pleasure to redeem Israel from among the different nations of the earth. Whatever he underwent was in the consequence of their own transgression, the Lord having chosen him to be a trespass offering, like the scapegoat which bore all the iniquities of the house of Israel. 
Concluding this section in Isaiah 53, it is clear that numerous rabbis believed Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah. So, if there are numerous rabbinical interpretations of Isaiah 53 being about the Messiah, then why do we not see such an interpretation as common today in Judaism? The answer is simple. Modern rabbis admittedly rely mostly on Rabbi Rashi, which, through his anti-Christian sentiment, has deliberately chosen to change the context of Isaiah 53 to be only about Israel. Psalm 22 is also another good portion to consider in the context of Messiah ben Yosef, our Messiah as the suffering servant, and that will be the focus of part two of this teaching. We hope that this teaching has blessed you, and remember, continue to test everything. Shalom. It is because of you, our generous supporters, who make it possible to offer these high-quality teachings completely free of charge. If you feel led to support 119 Ministries so that we can continue this effort, please visit testeverything.net and click on the Support 119 tab. Learn how you can partner with us to take the whole Word of God to the nations.